0: This is Denise Simon, host of the Denise Simon Experience. Join me every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on America's web radio.
1: Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your host and your psychiatrist, with all the latest mental health-related news. If it's about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, and updates on the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. This is where you'll hear about it first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and with a goal of better informing the general public about mental illness, and also of reducing the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis, and needing help for it. Hope you've been doing well. This show was recorded to be aired for October the 8th, 2014. Sorry about the confusion. Last week's show, which first aired on October 1st, actually was announced as the September 24th edition of the show, which there actually wasn't one. That was instead a repeat show. Sorry about that. A little slip up between myself and America's Web Radio, but we've got all that straightened out and have a brand new show for you for the week of Wednesday, October the 8th. And as we notice, there's a little bit of a nip in the air, and it's certainly starting to get dark earlier. And uh, before we know it, in a few more weeks, we'll be turning the clocks back for fall Time for those of you who suffer from seasonal affective disorder, that is winter blues or winter depression, to dust off your light boxes if you haven't done so already and uh, think about turning them on a little bit in the morning to maybe prevent a dip in your mood uh, when the days get shorter. Well, we're going to start out tonight's show with some advice your grandmother gave you. Eat your vegetables. Why am I saying that on a mental health-related show? Well, it's because fruit and vegetable consumption could be as good for your mental health as your physical health. That's right. New research suggests that, and it was published in the British Medical Journal Open, and it focused on mental well-being, and it found that high and low mental well-being were consistently associated with an individual's fruit and vegetable consumption. 33.5% of respondents with a high mental well-being ate five or more portions of fruit and vegetables a day, compared with only 6.8% of respondents reporting high mental well-being who ate less than one portion. So, of course, these data suggest that a higher an individual's fruit and vegetable intake, the lower the chance of their having a sort of a low mental well-being state. 31.4% of those with high mental well-being ate 3 to 4 portions, and 28.4% ate 1 to 2. Now, certainly other health-related behaviors were found to be associated with mental well-being but along with uh, smoking, uh, the only other health-related behaviors that they looked at were fruit and vegetable consumption, and uh, or rather those were the only ones that were consistently associated with higher or lower ratings of mental well-being. And this was both in men and women. Uh, they did not find any relationship between alcohol intake or obesity in terms of being associated with high or low mental well-being. Now, along with smoking, fruit and vegetable consumption was the health-related behavior most consistently associated with both high and low mental well-being. In other words, the less people ate vegetables, the more they had low state of mental well-being. The more fruits and vegetables they ate, the more they had higher levels of mental well-being. And so, therefore, the fruit and vegetable intake perhaps may be a potential driver, not just of physical, but also of mental well-being. And, of course, low mental well-being is strongly linked to mental illness altogether and mental health problems. But high mental well-being is more than the absence of of symptoms or absence of illness. What does that refer to, actually? Well, the article says it is a state in which people feel good and function well. Optimism, happiness, self-esteem, resilience, and good relationships with others are all part of this state. Mental well-being is important not just to protect people from mental illness, but because it protects people against common and serious physical diseases. So there you have it. Now, the article doesn't talk about why this is the case. What is so special about fruits and vegetables that it makes such a big difference in terms of your mental well-being? Well, it's probably all the antioxidants. Those are good for your brain, not just good for the rest of your body and helping your digestive tract work well. Antioxidants are very healthy for your brain. You want brain food? Eat berries. Berries are very rich in antioxidants and uh, they are good for your brain as well as good for your heart. Well, so there you have it. Eat your vegetables, folks, and your fruits. Now, another thing that we know is very good for you both physically and mentally is exercise. And you've heard and read and uh, you also hear me talk about it on this show a lot, that exercising regularly has its own unique benefits for mental health, that it's been consistently found that exercising plus taking medication for depression works better uh, than just medication alone. But how exactly is it that physical exercise protects the brain from stress-induced depression? That's right. It isn't just that exercise helps relieve depression. Exercise can protect the brain against stress-induced depression. Well, how does that work? Well, that's what this article is about. Physical exercise has many beneficial effects on human health, including the protection from stress-induced depression. However, until now, the mechanisms that mediate this protective effect have been unknown. In a new study in mice, researchers at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, which by the way is a major, major world center for neuroscience, show that exercise training induces changes in skeletal muscle that can purge the blood of a substance that accumulates during stress and is harmful to the brain. Now, This study is being published in the journal Cell. It was known that the protein PGC-1A1 or 1-alpha-1 1 1, increases in skeletal muscle with exercise and mediates the beneficial muscle conditioning in connection with physical activity. Now, In this study, researchers used a genetically modified mouse with high levels of this PGC1-alpha-1 protein in skeletal muscles that shows many characteristics of well-trained muscles, even without exercising. Uh, So again, this is not just your normal mouse, this is uh, a mouse designed to already have high levels of this protein. And then they have these mice, and they have normal control mice, expose them to a stressful environment such as loud noises, flashing lights, and reversed circadian rhythms at regular intervals. Again, members of PETA, please don't write in. After five weeks of mild stress, normal mice had developed depressive behavior, whereas the genetically modified mice, with the well-trained muscle characteristics and the higher levels of this PGC-1-alpha-1 protein, had no depressive symptoms. The reason, the conclusion that well-trained muscle tissue produces an enzyme that purges the body of harmful substances. The researchers discovered that mice with higher levels of this PGC-1-alpha-1 protein in their muscle also had higher levels of enzymes called KAT. KAT's convert kynurinine into kynuric acid. Now, this is a substance formed in the body and that shows up in the blood during stress. Uh, kynurinine and then kynurinic acid is a substance that is not able to pass from the blood to the brain. The exact function of kynurinine is not known, but high levels of it to be measured in patients with mental illness. So in this study, researchers demonstrated that when normal mice were given kynuranine, they displayed depressive behavior, but mice with increased level of the pgc one 1- alpha one in muscle were not affected. In fact, those animals never show elevated kynuranine levels in their blood since the KAT enzymes in their well-trained muscles quickly converted to kynuronic acid, which, again, does not penetrate the brain. So this is how exercise can protect the brain against these stress-induced chemicals. Now, it's possible that this work opens up a new pharmacological principle in the treatment of depression, where attempts could be made to influence skeletal muscle function instead of targeting the brain directly. Skeletal muscle appears to have a detoxif- detoxification effect that, when activated, can protect the brain from insults and related mental illness. In the meantime, it's just another argument for exercising regularly to combat depression and protect yourself against stress-induced depression. Regardless of the fact that that no one's going to be measuring your kynurinine or kynurinic acid levels anytime soon or injecting you with extra KAT enzymes. Um, <clears throat> I know it may not sound too exciting, basic science research, but uh, it certainly helps us learn more about the mechanisms mechanisms of depression and how to fight it and combat it to see exactly why exercise helps alleviate depression. All right, well, it is time to take our first commercial break on tonight's show. When we come back from that, I'll tell you how a single dose of an antidepressant makes changes in the brain, and we'll have more. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back.
2: In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded people all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group and they wanted to join but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you.
1: This
0: is Denise Simon, 18 hours a day. I live in a world as an intelligence analyst. What I find is reprehensible, what I find is terrifying, what I find is treasonous. The mainstream media has completely failed the American people. So join me for the Denise Simon Experience every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Halschers, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology.
0: Join us nine eight six two this is donna fiducia co-host of cowboy logic radio and you're listening to america's web radio
1: welcome back to psychiatry today your host psychiatrist dr scott bay with all the latest mental health related news a single dose of an antidepressant changes the brain well if that's the case then why do antidepressants take so long to work The vast majority of patients who take them don't notice any changes for at least two weeks before they start to notice even slight or subtle improvements in their mood. So how can this claim be true? Well, let's take a closer look. The single dose of an antidepressant is enough to produce dramatic changes in the functional architecture of the human brain. Brain scans taken of people before and after One dose of a commonly prescribed antidepressant, uh, which is, in this case, it was an SSRI, which stands for serotonin reuptake inhibitor, revealed changes in connectivity within three hours, according to researchers who reported their observations in the Cell Press journal Current Biology on September the 18th. Now, while SSRIs are among the most widely studied and prescribed form of antidepressants worldwide, it's still not 100% clear how they work. The drugs are believed to change brain connectivity in important ways, but those effects had generally been thought to take place over a period of weeks, not hours. The new findings show that changes begin to take place right away. What they are seeing in medication-free individuals who had never taken antidepressants before and then take one dose and are scanned may be an early marker of brain reorganization. Study participants were told to let their minds wander for about 15 minutes while in a brain scanner that measures the oxygenation of blood flow in the brain. The researchers characterized three-dimensional images of each individual's brain by measuring the number of connections between small blocks known as voxels, these are comparable to the pixels in a regular image, and the change in those connections with a single dose of an antidepressant. Now, for the purposes of the study, they chose as citalopram, which is the generic name for the well-known antidepressant Lexapro. Their whole brain network analysis shows that one dose of this SSRI reduces the level of intrinsic connectivity in most parts of the brain. However, researchers observed an increase in connectivity within two brain regions, specifically the cerebellum and the thalamus. The researchers say the new findings represent an essential first step toward clinical studies in patients suffering from depression. They also plan to compare the functional connectivity signature of brains in recovery and those of patients who fail to respond after weeks of SSRI treatment. Understanding the differences between the brains of individuals who respond to SSRIs and those who don't could help to better predict Who will benefit from this kind of antidepressant versus some other form of therapy? The hope is that ultimately this work will help to guide better treatment decisions and tailor individualized therapy for patients suffering from depression. And I would add to that, hopefully, antidepressants that work much faster with fewer side effects. We'll see. All right, now let's talk about getting up in the morning and let's talk about your alarm clock and let's be even more specific and talk about that snooze button. Are you feeling guilty about now? Are you one of those people who presses that snooze button once the alarm goes on, once, twice, maybe more before you actually get up and get out of bed? Are you even one of those people who purposely sets their alarm earlier than they actually intend to get up just so they can enjoy pressing that button one or more times and delaying the inevitability of getting up and starting the day? Well, when I came across this article, I was thinking just about you. This article is called Press Snooze, You Lose. Over the course of a lifetime, the average American spends three and a half months dozing after pressing snooze, according to a recent study conducted on behalf of Withings, a consumer electronics company that sells wearable devices tracking sleep quality. If you're like most Americans then, one of the more than 3,000 surveyed, 57% identified as snoozers, You hit the button at least once before getting up. It's easy to understand why this happens. The snooze button is insanely seductive, promising a brief escape into oblivion before you actually have to face the day. Now, this button has always been a pet peeve of mine. I think it's one of the most insidious inventions known to man. And I think whoever came up with it should be cursed for eternity because I think it works against people. And finally, here is an article uh, that is like-minded and makes the case that it actually does cause you to lose when you snooze. So research suggests that every time you capitulate to the siren call of the snooze button, you're actually making the wake-up process more painful. Why? When you doze off after waking up, you're likely restarting the sleep cycle, altering the delicate chemical dance that occurs in your bloodstream throughout the course of, your, of the night. Your body, understandably, isn't chemically primed to wake up at the beginning of the sleep cycle making the inevitable get-out-of-bed process much harder. Hitting the snooze button also increases the effect of sleep inertia. That's the window of time between when you technically wake up and when you actually feel awake. While the more primitive parts of our brain wake up immediately, the prefrontal cortex, the area associated with self-control and decision-making, takes longer, up to two to four hours or longer in some cases, to function optimally. Ever experience a hazy, sluggish, brain-half-dead feeling first thing in the morning before your first cup of coffee? That's sleep inertia, and you don't want to mess with it. At the end, or more accurately, beginning of the day, most sleep experts agree that it's best to To get as much into as much uninterrupted shut eye as possible in order to increase your chances of completing a full sleep cycle. So set your alarm for exactly when you know you need to wake up and skip the doze off wake up again routine. While it may feel like it in the moment, the snooze button is not your friend. As David Dingus, who heads the Sleep and Chronobiology Laboratory at the University of Pennsylvania, recently told the Wall Street Journal, you'd be better off getting that extra 10 to 20 minutes of real sleep rather than doing that dance with the alarm clock. Now, I know some of you are going to say, well, that may be true, but nonetheless, I like doing it, and I feel better doing it, and it's a habit I've gotten into, and I'm going to continue to. That's fine, uh, but I wanted you to have the facts, and uh, you can decide for yourself uh, whether you want to drop this habit that makes it actually harder to transition from wakefulness to sleep, or whether you want to keep enjoying uh, the siren call of the snooze button. Interestingly enough, I found a related article about sleep drunkenness disorder, which may affect one in seven people. So I thought, well, if I talked about the snooze button, let me talk about sleep drunkenness. Maybe this will help someone to hear about this. A study is shining new light on a sleep disorder called sleep drunkenness. The disorder may be as prevalent as affecting one in every seven people. And the research was published in the August 26th print issue of the journal Neurology, uh, a medical journal of the American Academy of Neurology. Sleep drunkenness disorder involves confusion or inappropriate behavior, such as answering the phone instead of turning off the alarm, during or following arousals from sleep, either during the first part of the night or in the morning. An episode, often triggered by a forced awakening, may even cause violent behavior during sleep or amnesia of the episode. These episodes of waking up confused have received considerably less attention than sleepwalking, even though the consequences can be just as serious. Now, For this study, 19,136 people, age 18 and older, from the general U.S. population were interviewed about their sleep habits and whether they had experienced any symptoms of the disorder. Participants were also asked about mental illness diagnoses and any medications they took. The study found that 15% of the group had experienced an episode in the last year, with more than half reporting more than one episode per week. In a majority of cases, 84 percent, people with sleep drunkenness also had a sleep disorder, a mental health disorder, or were taking psychiatric drugs, such as antidepressants. Less than 1 percent of the people with sleep drunkenness had no known cause or related condition. Among those who had an episode, 37.4 percent also had a mental disorder, people with depression, bipolar disorder, alcoholism, panic, or post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety were more likely to experience sleep drunkenness. The research also found that about 31% of people with sleep drunkenness were taking psychiatric medications such as antidepressants. Both long and short sleep times were associated with the sleep disorder about 20% of those getting less than six hours of sleep per night, and 15% of those getting at least nine hours experienced sleep drunkenness. Now, Those statistics uh, require some further explanation relating to some other studies I told you about that concern duration of sleep, but it is time for another commercial break. So let me get back to that after we're done, We'll finish up our discussion of sleep drunkenness, and we'll have more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Scherz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m.
2: For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan, I E. Ear and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They're open Monday through Friday, 830 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose and Throat Center, you Can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team.
0: This is Donna Fiducia, co host of Cowboy Logic Radio, and you're listening to America's Web Radio, a most eclectic mix of conservative shows.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, and we're talking about sleep drunkenness disorder. All right, so right before the break, I was saying that. 20% 20% of people who get less than 6 hours of sleep a night and 15% of people who get 9 hours or more experience sleep drunkenness. So why is it that sleep drunkenness would be increased in people who sleep too little or too much? Well, uh, that is how people are found to be if they get too little or too much sleep, just reinforcing that for getting a night's sleep, there is a correct dose, if you will, and that's why it's about eight hours or so, and less than six is way too little, and uh, certainly more than eight and a half hours also is too much. Remember, we talked about that on the show several months ago. Now, these episodes of confused awakening occur in the, at a high rate in the general population. Again, they've not received much attention, but clearly more research should be done on when they occur and whether they can be treated. People with sleep disorders or mental health issues should also be aware that they may be at greater risk of these episodes. Now, the article doesn't say this, but I think it's fairly obvious that people who repeatedly use the snooze alarm uh, are putting themselves at greater risk for this uh, because you're constantly going back into the early stages of sleep each time you press that button and then being disturbed again when the alarm goes back on after a little snooze break uh, puts you at risk for being in this confused state. Uh, so, again, you may say, well, yeah, so I've put the alarm off and thinking it was the phone and trying to answer it, whatever, a little confused for a second. It's no big deal. Hey, you know, wouldn't necessarily argue with that. Uh, but sometimes there are more serious negative consequences of sleep drunkenness. Be so forewarned. Next up on psychiatry today. <clears throat> Came across this article. It says talk therapy may help social anxiety better than drugs. Now, <clears throat> social anxiety disorder whether you want to admit it or agree with it or not, is a very real illness. It is not just shyness. It is a very serious and disabling illness. Uh, people who are shy can function and don't have severe anxiety and panic attacks. Uh, people with social anxiety are more than just shy. Uh, they are crippled and disabled by their inability to tolerate being around others due to fear of negative scrutiny, and fear of doing or saying something embarrassing. Uh, Now, there are, of course, several medications that are used to treat social anxiety, but much as the same as with depression and other anxiety disorders, they don't work well for everybody. And certainly the gold standard of treatment of any anxiety disorder including social anxiety, is the combination of medication and cognitive behavioral therapy. Many studies of cognitive behavioral therapy have found that initially medication may work better than cognitive behavioral therapy, but subsequent to that, cognitive behavioral therapy produces longer-lasting relief. So let's take a look at this article uh, that says, Talk Therapy should be regarded as the best first-line treatment for people with social anxiety disorders. Social anxiety disorder, or social phobia as it is also called, is a psychiatric condition in which people have such intense fear of social situations that it gets in the way of their normal daily lives. The most common treatments for the condition are talk therapy, anti-anxiety medications, and antidepressants. People with this disorder can experience severe impairment, from shunning friendships to turning down promotions at work that would require increased social interaction. In a worst case, it can cause such severe disability that a person is completely homebound, in other words, not able to bring themselves to leave their home. Now in a new study researchers set out to compare the effects of these two different therapies on people with the disorder. They looked at the findings of 101 clinical trials conducted between 1988 and 2013 involving a total of more than 13,000 participants. Some of the studies assessed the effectiveness of medication in treating social phobia, others looked at talk therapies, including an approach called cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, which focuses on teaching patients ways of dealing with social situations so that they can overcome their irrational fears. The researchers found cognitive behavioral therapy was more effective in treating patients' than were any medications, according to the study that was published September 25th in the journal The Lancet Psychiatry. Still, the researchers also found that people who received cognitive behavioral therapy and those who took antidepressants, which were generally the types called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, or SNRIs, had better results compared with patients who didn't receive any treatment. The findings suggest that cognitive behavioral therapy should be regarded as the go-to treatment for people with social anxiety disorder. For patients who do not get better after talk therapy, SSRI medication could be a second choice according to the researchers. In general, the results showed that most people with social anxiety disorder respond well to common treatments, which is good news for people suffering from the condition. Because both talk therapy and antidepressants were effective in treating social phobia, the researchers looked at whether combining the two would be an even better approach. But few of the studies they reviewed considered this question, and the researchers didn't find evidence that such a combined approach would produce results any better than either of the treatments did alone. The researchers noted that taking antidepressants, although effective in treating social phobia in some people, does have side effects, ranging from increased agitation to sexual dysfunction talk therapy may also be superior to medication because there's a better chance that the benefits continue after the treatment ends. Previous studies have shown that most people with social phobia who improve by taking SSRI antidepressants get worse again when they stop taking the medication. In contrast, the effects of psychological treatments are generally well-maintained after the treatment ends, and patients can continue to apply new skills and make further gains. Well, I have to say I agree with many of this article's conclusions, uh, but I'm happy to report uh, I've had many great success stories in treating social phobia uh, with antidepressants. And uh, I sometimes will share these success stories with people who come to see me and are suffering with social phobia to give them hope that they can feel and function better. But I would never recommend against also having cognitive behavioral therapy. To me, the gold standard of treatment is doing both, even though the researchers say they couldn't find any studies to support that the combined treatment worked any better I still think from what I've seen in my practice they do. Now <clears throat> so here are just a few of my favorite case histories for social phobia. I treated a young lady who uh, was a senior in high school when she first started seeing me and then uh, I continued to see her into her uh, college years. When she initially came to see me her social phobia was such that she never raised her hand to answer a question in school and lived in mortal fear that the teacher would call on her and she would have to speak in front front of the class to her peers. On days when she was supposed to give an oral report, she was homesick from school. Uh, So her social phobia was especially severe when it came to speaking in front of other people well she had a fairly close blood relative who did well for her anxiety disorder on Prozac so I gave this patient Prozac and after it started working she came back and reported to me that she and her friends went to a crowded restaurant and were singing karaoke to this big crowd of strangers uh, and thus were the center of attention uh, up at the front on karaoke night, this would normally be the social phobic's worst nightmare, to be not only speaking but singing, no less, in front of a, a crowded room full of strangers. Another person I treated was a, a middle-aged man who was working for a major telecom company, and... Always stayed just in sort of lower to middle management because he would never speak up at meetings. He went to meetings uh, in, with fear and dread that he would be called upon to speak to his coworkers and superiors. And I was able to successfully treat his social phobia with Paxil such that he was much more comfortable to speak up at meetings. People heard that he was quite bright and had very good ideas and very quickly he advanced within the company and got uh, two or three promotions. But my favorite is this man who worked for the same company for about seven or eight years, never once going to the annual company Christmas party. Well, after I was able to treat his social anxiety with Zoloft, he not only went to the annual company Christmas party, he won the door prize. So that meant he had to get up in front of everyone at the party to be awarded the door prize, and he did fine with it. Again, being the center of attention, normally the worst nightmare of a social phobic. So if any of you out there have social phobia, you don't think you can get help, you can. Whether it's CBT, whether it's medication, I encourage you to seek help. You can get better. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Are you
2: tired of taking medication to control your allergy symptoms? Do you suffer from uncontrollable asthma or eczema? Sublingual immunotherapy is a safe and effective alternative. Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center is committed to bringing the newest medical advances to their patients. With sublingual immunotherapy, you can now train your immune system to stop responding to environmental and food allergies. No more shots. No more trips to the doctor and freedom from taking daily allergy medication. The drops are simply placed under the tongue three times a day. Both children and adults can be treated. It is safe and cost effective. Call Peachtree Ear, Nose and Throat Center today at 404-591-9100 for more information or to make an appointment. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road Northwest in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 830 a.m. until 4 p.m., Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Mention that you heard about sublingual immunotherapy on Radio Sandy Springs and get free allergy testing.
0: This is Donna Fiducia, former anchor at the Fox News Channel and now co-host of Cowboy Logic Radio, and you're listening to America's Web
1: Radio. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay, and we're going to turn our attention now to a more serious subject, that of sibling bullying. And uh, those of you who are regular listeners to the show are aware that I frequently talk about the very serious consequences of bullying or peer abuse, because I feel very strongly that it leads to very serious mental health problems, and we need to have more free and open dialogue about it so that more people are willing to do whatever it takes to put a stop with it and not see it as something that's an inevitable part of growing up, that we all simply have to tolerate. But I don't recall having talked about bullying between siblings. Well, it turns out that a new study has found that children who revealed they had been bullied by their brothers or sisters several times a week or more during early adolescence were twice as likely to report being clinically depressed as young adults. So Sibling bullying is linked to depression later on in life and also self-harm. They were also twice as likely to say they had self-harmed within the previous year compared with those who had not been bullied. Now These findings were published in the journal Pediatrics, and they're the results of the first long-term study to investigate possible links between sibling bullying and clinical depression and self-harm in young adults. The research suggests interventions are needed to specifically target a form of bullying which it says to date has been largely ignored by academics, policymakers, and clinicians. Forms of bullying where victims are shoved around the playground or targeted at work have been well documented. However, this study uncovers a largely hidden form of bullying. Victims of sibling bullying are offered little escape as sibling relationships endure throughout development. They are not talking about the sort of teasing that often goes on within families, but incidents that occur several times a week in which victims are ignored by their brothers or sisters or are subjected to verbal or physical violence. Children of women who enrolled in the Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children in the 1990s took part in this research. Nearly 7,000 children aged 12 completed postal questionnaires in 2003 to 2004 about whether they had experienced any form of sibling bullying and if so, how often it happened. The same children were followed up at the age of 18 years, so their mental health could be assessed using a validated online questionnaire, known as the clinical interview schedule. The teenagers attended a clinic to fill in the questionnaire that asked them about their feelings and any recent self-harming behavior. Of the 3,452 children with information on both sibling bullying and psychiatric outcomes, 1,810 said they had not been bullied by a brother or sister. Of these, 6.4% had depression scores in the clinically significant range, 9.3% experienced anxiety, and 7.6% had self-harmed in the previous year. Let's compare those numbers with the 786 children who said they had been bullied by a sibling several times a week. They had clinical depression that was reported by 12.3%, almost exactly twice that in those who hadn't been uh, bullied by siblings. Self-harm was 14% uh, self-harm in the previous year, again, almost twice uh, that much as those who were not bullied by siblings. And in terms of anxiety, 16% reported anxiety, again, uh, just shy of twice that much compared uh, to the kids who were not bullied by their siblings. This link between Bullying by siblings as a child and later mental health disorders was found to be similar for both boys and girls. Victims were more likely to be girls than boys, with this form of bullying more common in families where there were three or more children. Older brothers were more often the perpetrators. On average, victims reported that sibling bullying had started at the age of eight. Social learning and how to behave with peers starts at home, and when siblings are bullied, it can have serious long-term consequences, as was found in this study. It is important that parents set clear rules about what is allowed in conflicts, and they should intervene consistently When their children maltreat each other repeatedly. Children who said they had been frequently bullied by siblings were more likely to report increased feelings of anxiety. However, anxiety was not found to be a significant effect after individual and family characteristics had been taken into account. The study highlights existing programs in the United States that specifically deal with relationship problems between brothers and sisters more broadly. It suggests that these programs should be assessed systematically to see whether they can reduce sibling bullying, thereby reducing the potential psychological damage. Well, obviously there's a lot of people who are damaged by this and really uh, they're going to need therapy to work their way through the effects of this trauma. Uh, so really prevention in the first place is the key. And uh, I couldn't agree more with the conclusions uh, of the people who did the study that uh, parents have to set the tone and be uh, mindful of what's going on among their kids and not simply just say, well, you know, if they won't stop, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. They're just being kids. Uh, it's incumbent upon parents not to let this happen. And, you know, hopefully with the knowledge that this can lead to mental health consequences later in life, and that will uh, result in parents being more accountable to try to prevent this behavior. Next, have you ever been in your family doctor's office and there was a pad of depression questionnaires sitting on the table, the coffee table in the waiting room? Well, it turns out some research was done that found that these brief depression questionnaires could lead to unnecessary antidepressant prescriptions. Let's see how. Short questionnaires used to identify patients at risk for depression are linked with antidepressant medications being prescribed when they may not be needed. This research was published in the September-October issue of the Journal of the American Board of Family Medicine. Known as Brief Depression Symptom Measures, these self-administered questionnaires are used in primary care settings to determine the frequency and severity of depression symptoms among patients. The research team was concerned that the questionnaires might lead to prescriptions for antidepressant medication being given to those who aren't depressed, The study included 595 patients of primary care offices located in California. Patients selected for the study were considered at low risk for depression and therefore poor candidates for antidepressants based on results of a widely employed brief screening tool known as the Patient Health Questionnaire 9 or PHQ-9 which was administered by the research team. This screening questionnaire, which includes questions about changes in sleep, concentration, energy, and appetite, was completed the same day the patients had appointments to see their primary care physicians, who were unaware their patients had completed the PHQ-9. Based on a review of medical records, the patients were divided into two groups – those who were asked during their doctor's office visits to complete brief depression symptom questionnaires besides the one administered by the researchers, and those who were not. The groups were compared in terms of rates of depression diagnoses and prescriptions for antidepressants received from their physicians. Of the 545 patients who did not complete brief depression questionnaires during their doctor's office visits, 10.5% were diagnosed with depression, and 3.8% were prescribed antidepressants. Of the 50 patients who completed brief depression questionnaires during their doctor's office visits, 20% were diagnosed with depression almost twice, and 12% were prescribed antidepressants, about three times more. The study highlights the need for research to determine the best ways to apply brief depression questionnaires in daily practice, as use of these screeners tripled the likelihood that patients in the study who were not apt to be depressed would receive depression treatment. Part of the problem could be in how questionnaire results are interpreted. Depression symptoms such as insomnia, fatigue, and poor concentration are associated with many health conditions. The questionnaires aren't diagnostic in the sense that there's a certain score that means the patient definitely does or does not have depression. Formal interviews are required to help doctors decide whether a patient's fatigue, for instance, is caused by depression. That fatigue could also be due to chronic lung or heart disease. It could also be due to an adjustment disorder that is usually transient and isn't likely to respond to antidepressants we need to give providers good guidance on how to use brief symptom measures in evaluating patients and making treatment decisions. And I agree with that. I think at most, these screening questionnaires should be used for just that. If someone's result is positive, then you don't take that as a a definite conclusion of a diagnosis of depression and initiate treatment. Instead, you take it As a red flag that this person needs more thorough and detailed evaluation for depression, and if that more thorough and detailed evaluation warrants it, a trial of medication. Well, it's time to wrap up tonight's show. I hope you enjoyed this mental health-related information that I enjoyed bringing to you, and I hope you have a wonderful stress-free week until next time, but if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night until next week, and thank you for listening. This is Denise Simon, host of the Denise Simon Experience. Join me every
0: Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on America's Web Radio.